Well, I want to minister for a little while this morning through a message I'm calling Your Very Eyes. I don't know of a body part that we value more or would protect more than our eyes. If you needed a kidney from me, you can have it. If you needed a piece of my liver, you can have it. But if you ask me for one of my eyeballs, I just can't see giving it to you, brother. I can't. I want you to imagine for a moment that you have to give up every one of your five senses over the next five years, and you get to pick the order that you give them up in. You know, I would just be guessing, brother, to tell you which one you'd start with. But I believe I can tell you with accuracy which one you'd end up at last giving up. That'd be your very eyes. What's the point in having touch if you can't see what you're touching? I mean, eyes are precious to us. And that's, I think, what the Father was getting at when he said to David, you are the apple of my eye. It literally means you're the pupil of my eye, something that I value, something that I protect, something that's very, very precious to me. In early September of 2011, I and my wife Valerie's eyes fell for the first time on a remarkable couple that we met that year at Bible College. <laughs> that couple's with us today. That couple is none other than Lauren and Janet Peterson. And it didn't happen right away, but it eventually took place. Their proper names of Lauren and Janet would somehow get eclipsed by more tender and the more affectionate terms of endearment of Papa and Mama. And that's who they are to me. They don't have to be your papa and your mama, but I'm telling you, you can never take that from me. That's who they are to me. They are papa and mama. And in preparation for this message, I had to take a stroll down memory lane. It's fun to do sometimes. And during that stroll, I found a photo album in my heart that was stuffed full of pictures and vignettes and videos, but more so it was stuff full of memories. I thought about the many things that Papa and Mama and my wife and I have done together. We went to Bible college together. I can't tell you how many times we sat across a table and we broke bread together. We have laughed together, we have loved together, we have cried together, we have celebrated together, we have prayed together, and we have played together, and we have weathered some storms together. We planted Triumphant Grace Ministries together. We have ministered together, we have served side by side together. But more importantly than that is the wonderful truth that we have grown together. We have grown together in grace. We have grown together in friendship. 
We have grown together in love for one another. We have grown together in honor and respect for one another. Now, I find it interesting that here it is, early September again, eight years later, eight years into this friendship that we've developed, that your very eyes today are drawn to a couple that I would have to say has enriched your lives tremendously. And the only way for that not to have happened is you couldn't have spent any time with them. Because if you spent time with them, they would have enriched your lives. So today we not only say hello to this special couple, but we say goodbye. It's not like it's a permanent goodbye, but it's goodbye to a couple of the wonderful attributes that we've come to see in Papa and Mama. Papa has a hearty laugh and he has a witty contribution to most things. Mama just has such warm hugs and smiles that just melt your heart. So we say goodbye to kind of the reality that your very eyes will not see them on the basis that you've gotten accustomed to over the years, weekly and sometimes twice a week. On the second Sunday of September of last year, 2018, we set Papa and Mama forth as licensed ministers under the banner of Triumphant Grace Ministries. I find it almost odd that here it is, the second Sunday, one year later, that we take that same precious couple, the ones that we set forth a year ago, and now we send forth. We send forth with our blessing, and we see them as ambassadors of the gospel. Ambassadors represent their government the government of grace, and you do it very well. So we send you forth with our blessing and prayerfully, and we will pray for you when I close this message today. We will bring you up and we will pray for you, lay hands on you and pray for you. I don't particularly like it when loved ones move away because in every farewell, you may have seen that person for the last time, not in the sense of someone dying, but in the sense that we all have journeys in life and God takes us in different journeys. So at the end of this service, when you put your arms around them and thank them for the way they've impacted your life, even as just a friend, I want you to bear that in mind that we never know when we've hugged a person for the last time. We never know when we've tied our own shoestrings for the last time. We never know. So it's important to live life and see good days and impact people's lives. Live like today was the last day of your life and hug them and love them and stay in contact with them. The Apostle Paul knew what it was like to say goodbye. He knew what it was like to say so long, farewell to the people that he had come to love. There was not a dry eye 
when the Apostle Paul said goodbye for the last time to the Ephesian elders. But what would his last words be to those elders? We find those last words that Paul spoke in Acts chapter 20, verses 32 through 38. Look at these words. He said, now I commit you to God. In other words, he's saying, I'm going to literally put you in daddy's hands. I'm committing you to God. He said, now I commit you to God. Look at the beautiful words. And to the word of his grace. I want you to lock that in the treasure chest of your heart this morning. Not just because they're going, but this should be our heart every day. That we're committed to God. We're committed to the things of God. We're committed as our missionaries are committed to their Haitian ministry. Be committed to whatever God calls you to and work with your whole heart. Now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace. Look what he says, which can build you up. Who wants to stay pressed down? The word says that the grace of God and the fact that we've been put in God's hands has the ability to build us up. Am I in the word? It's what it says, which has the ability to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Paul said, I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. He said, you yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. In everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak. Remembering the words the Lord Jesus himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. I love that. When we catch that revelation, it's more blessed to deposit than it is to withdraw. But I think you catch the drift of what I'm saying there. More blessed to give than to receive. When Paul had finished speaking, there's something tender about this to me. The Bible says he knelt down with all of them and prayed. There was no just, hey guys, we'll see you later. Hey, it's been nice seeing you, been nice knowing you. I want to encourage you today to pray with people. Pray with people over the phone, pray with people in person, pray with people wherever you go. You do not know what your prayers are capable of doing when you release God's word. And when you pray, pray his word. Not just a bunch of mumbo jumbo, pray his word. So get the word in your heart. What word? The word of grace, the one he just told you about. The one that you've been committed to. God, grace. He knelt down, he prayed with them. Look at these words. They all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. What grieved them most was his statement that they would never see his face again. Then they accompanied him to the ship. We shed tears when we say our farewells to a person or to people that have impacted our lives. Your very eyes communicate a thanksgiving. Your very eyes communicate a grace. They communicate a message of love and gratitude. And in the silence of your embrace, your heart is confronted with this truth found in John chapter 15 and verse 13. And the Bible says these words, 
greater love hath no man than this. That a man lay down his life for his friends. Greater love. Listen, he's showing us, he's telling us, these are Jesus' words. And he said, your love cannot be displayed in any greater measure than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. I heard the story several years ago about a little girl named Liz. And Liz had a rare blood disorder. And without a transfusion, Liz would certainly die. But it couldn't just be a blood transfusion. She had to find somebody that had the antibodies for that blood disorder that she had. Someone that had been through that same disorder and had lived. And their body built up antibodies to fight this infection, fight this disease. The only one they could find was her little brother. He was about five years old. And so the doctors discussed it with the parents. And the parents were on board. But the parents said, you know, you really should talk to our little boy about this. And so they took the little boy aside and they began to explain it to him. And as the little boy listened with all of his heart, he said, you know what? If me giving my blood to my sister will save her life, he said, then I'll do it. And when the transfusions began, they laid on cots next to each other. One dripping in, one dripping out. His little sister was so sick, she was gray in the face, she could barely move. But as she got this rich blood, this blood that began to fight in her system, over the course of that day, color began to come back. And she began to get some energy. And it brought great joy to her little five-year-old brother's heart. He smiled. And then the doctors and the nurses came in. And they walked to the foot of the little boy's bed. And suddenly his smile disappeared. It drained from his face. And he looked up at the doctors and he said, Will I start to die right away? You see, that little guy had misunderstood the doctor when he said, We need your blood. He thought he meant he'd have to take it all. But when that little boy made the decision to give his sister his blood, he made that decision with a John 15, 13 heart. Greater love hath no man than this, that he laid down his life for his friends, for his sister, whatever it may be. He made the decision based on that, that great love. The beautiful story. I believe that story about the little boy and his sister, I believe it's a true story. I do. But whether that story happened or not, whether that's true or not, I want to ask you a couple of questions. I want to confront your heart this morning with a couple of questions. In the depths of your heart, you answer these questions. And the first one is this. Did you, and did you, and did you, and did you, mama, did at one time, did you have a fatal blood disorder called sin? Yes. How did we get it? We got it from our first Adam. He passed it down to everybody. Yes, we had a fatal blood disorder. It's called a sinful nature. Now, the second question is this. 
Did Jesus lay down his life for his friends? <laughs> Absolutely. The answer, again, is yes. Therefore, in Christ, we have been transfused with the last Adam's blood. In Christ, we no longer have the first Adam's blood. And with Jesus' blood, the last Adam's blood, we have received the antibodies to protect us from the disorder, the culprit called sin. It can never contaminate our spirit ever again. In other words, through Jesus' righteousness, our blood disorder referred to as sin was done away with. He didn't lay on a bed next to his friends. He hung on an old rugged cross. He was the bag of blood that was dripping into our bodies. We see this truth in Romans chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. The Apostle Paul wrote these words. He said, For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Amen. Oh, friends, underscore these words in your heart this morning. Look at them again. For we know, we don't have to guess, we know. We know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body, the body was ruled by sin. It had a taskmaster at one time. It said, so that that body might be done away with, we shall no longer be slaves to sin. Because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now, let me ask you a question. According to those two verses, what are the qualifications that a man has to meet in order to be set free from sin? Look at them very closely. <laughs> what are the qualifications? Well, friends, it's not a trick question. He has to be crucified with Christ. He has to be crucified with him. It says it right there. The second question is, were you crucified with Christ? Of course you were. It says it in that scripture and in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. It says it there too. It says, I am crucified with Christ. We had a blood disorder. No way to live through it. Christ became our sacrifice. His rich blood dripped into our hearts, gave us a blood transfusion called righteousness, called justification, called holiness. And we can never be contaminated again. This is what I felt the Holy Spirit say to me. A man is confined in the prison of a fallen nature until he comes to Christ. Oh, believe me, you're in a prison. I don't care how good life is, you're in a prison. Without Christ, he remains in darkness and cannot see. He cannot see his way out. That's what Jesus was getting at when he said to Nicodemus, he said, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. But Nicodemus came to Jesus one night. It says, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night. And he said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher sent from God, for no man could do the miracles that thou doest, except God is with him. Jesus looked at him and he said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, truly, truly, I say unto you, except a man be born again, he cannot see. He cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said, how can a man be born again when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? 
And then Jesus begins to juxtapose so skillfully the difference between the spirit and the flesh. He begins to tell Nicodemus, Nicodemus, you got to be born of water and the spirit. And he says to Nicodemus, he says, marvel not when I say unto you, Nicodemus, you must be born again. What was Jesus saying? He was saying, Nicodemus, your very eyes are your biggest problem. You need new eyes, Nicodemus. You need new eyes. He was saying, Nicodemus, the kingdom I come from is a kingdom of faith. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Friends, faith is what justifies a man. We are not justified by anything but faith. You say, how do you know that? Romans chapter 5. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've also gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we rejoice in our suffering, for we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. Oh, let me tell you something, and hope will never disappoint you. Why? Because the Bible says God has poured out his love what kind of love? The love that he's got for his friends. He has poured out his love into your hearts by the Holy Spirit, he says, whom he has given you. We are justified by faith. Man, if there was one thing I would want written on my tombstone, it would just simply be justified by faith. I'm justified by faith. And I love that, friends, because, listen, I'm not smart enough, I'm not rich enough, I'm not strong enough to do this on my own. I'm justified by faith. Faith in what? Faith in the Son of God and His finished work. We are justified by faith, and we live by the faith of the Son of God who loved us and gave Himself for us. The Bible declares in Romans chapter 1 and verse 17 that the righteous shall live by faith. The Bible declares in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 13, the righteous shall live by faith. And the Bible declares in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 38, guess what? The righteous shall live by faith. And the Bible declares in Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 4, that the just or the righteous shall live by faith. Friends, listen, it's not just one place in the Bible where it tells us that. It tells us all over the place that the righteous live by faith. Faith what? Faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. Your very eyes will have scales. <laughs> Your eyes will have scales on them until you come to the revelation that the righteous live by faith apart from the law. You live by faith apart from the law. That message right there is worth me laying my life down right there alone. And the Apostle Paul did just that. His message was to tell people, listen, you have been justified by faith apart from the law. Praise God. According to Galatians chapter 3 and verse 12, the Bible says the law requires no faith. Therefore, if you want to live, what? You can't live by the law because we're justified by faith. We come to God by faith. He says, you're justified by faith apart from the law. What is the law? You keep hearing me talk about the law. Listen, the law is made up of 365 don'ts and 248 do's. Together, that's 613. There's your law. Included in that is the Ten Commandments. 
But it was a system that the Jewish man had to live by under the old covenant. But I'm telling you, the old covenant has been made obsolete. We are no longer under that law. Now that doesn't make us law breakers. We uphold the law. The law, the Bible says, is good and holy and righteous. But we are not justified by anything we do. Let me tell you something, brother. It doesn't matter if you've got bare feet or you've got $900 alligator slippers on. You are justified by faith in the Son of God. He loves you, Mark, just the way you are. He loves you, Maynard, just the way you are. And don't you let anybody come along and talk you out of that. I'm telling you, he loves you just the way you are. You have been justified by faith. Listen, I'm not putting anything on for you. I'm not here to put a show on for you. This is the passion that comes out of me when I think about the magnitude of the gift that my father has given me and that he's given you. It's priceless. It's awesome. Did you know that during that same encounter that Jesus had with Nicodemus, did you know it was that Pharisee Nicodemus that Jesus said after he told him you needed to be born again that he looked at Nicodemus and he said Nicodemus for God so loved the world and that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life it was Nicodemus daddy why didn't you save that for some grand occasion like Lauren and Janet mama and papa going to Iowa why not a grand occasion like that but a Pharisee? Really? A tax collector? A publican? Whatever it may be. Why would you release it on Nicodemus? Because they were having an encounter that night. And Jesus went through all that stuff about being born again. He talked about the Spirit because Nicodemus didn't understand the Spirit. He said, Nicodemus, the Spirit is like the wind. It blows in and then it blows out. You don't know where it came from and you don't know where it's going. So it is with the Spirit of God. That's the power of the Spirit. He said, Nicodemus, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but through him the world might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. And this, this is the condemnation, that light has come into the world. But men love darkness rather than light. Why? Because their deeds are evil. For anyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. But he that doeth truth loves the light and comes to the light that the works of God might be manifest in him. Nicodemus got a heart full that night, didn't he? I don't know if you've ever noticed in your Christian walk, sometimes you ask somebody something and man, they'll just give you a download. And you just wonder, when am I ever going to get a chance to breathe? Because I'm taking in so much stuff here. Nicodemus thought he was real cool coming to Jesus by night. Quiet, uninterrupted conversation with Jesus. Disciples are fast asleep. But there they are on a rooftop having a starlit night conversation. And Jesus dropped those bombs into his heart. For God so loved the world, Nicodemus. Nicodemus said, no, no, wait, wait a minute. God doesn't love the world. God loves me, God loves the Pharisees. God loves the people who take care of the law and uphold the law. No, Jesus didn't just die for them. Jesus died for the world. God so loved the world. I want to tell you something. That'll make you think about how you treat people. That person, whoever it may be that you encounter, 
They were included in John 3, 16, when God said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So what I notice after that encounter with Jesus and Nicodemus in chapter 3, that Nicodemus disappears from the landscape for a while. You don't hear anything about him for a while. It doesn't even say what Nicodemus did that night. There was no altar call. We don't know what happened with Nicodemus. Chapter 4, no Nicodemus. Chapter 5 of the book of John, no Nicodemus. Chapter 6, no Nicodemus. Chapter 7, he's going to get reintroduced. You see, they had enough of Jesus' shenanigans. They thought they were shenanigans, you know. And they sent people to arrest Jesus. Temple guards is what they were. And we're going to see Nicodemus, and you're going to get a hint of something began to take root in his heart that night. Look at this. John chapter 7, verses 45 through 52. So they send these guards out, and they come back. Finally, the temple guards went back to the chief priests and the Pharisees who asked them, why didn't you bring him in? Why didn't you bring Jesus in? And they said, no one ever spoke the way this man does, the guards replied. I, I, I just find that comical. I mean, these are soldiers. They're a man's man. They got broad shoulders and spears and helmets. And they're sent on a mission that when you go on a mission, you do exactly what you're told to do. You represent us exactly the way we told you to do it. And they go and they hear Jesus teaching and they're like, what is this? Man, they stuck their spears in the ground and they pulled up a chair. And I believe they listened to the whole sermon, to be honest with you. I really do. I believe they heard the whole thing. Because when they came back, they said, we never heard a man talk like this. What was coming out of his mouth? It wasn't law, friends. It was love. It was love. And Nicodemus was present when these guards came back. And Nicodemus is having these flashbacks. Oh, I remember the night. I remember the night that we sat together and you told me God so loved the world. I remember the night you told me how the Spirit works. I remember this. And they asked him, why didn't you bring him in? No one ever spoke the way this man does, the guards replied. And the Pharisee says, you mean he has deceived you also? The Pharisees retorted. Have any of the rulers or the Pharisees believed in him? No. But this mob, who's the mob? The disciples and the other people that are following. They call them a mob. But he said, this mob that knows nothing about the law, like there's scum under your fingernails, you know, that knows nothing about the law, there's a curse on them. They're trying to bring down this curse on these, these people that are following them. Now, Nicodemus can't contain himself because he met with him that one night. And Nicodemus, the Bible says, who had gone to Jesus earlier and who was one of their own number, asked a question. That's all he did. He just said, I've just got a question, okay? He said, does our law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what he has been doing? I bet you could have heard a pin drop in that room. Nicodemus is the leader. I mean, he is the elite of Pharisees. Surely that wouldn't have just come out of your mouth. What did you say? Oh, yeah, he said that. They replied, and they're asking Nicodemus this question. Are you from Galilee too? 
Look into it, and you will find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. That's what they said. Now, we are in John chapter 7. Remember, Jesus met him in John chapter 3. Silent for 4th, 5th, and 6th chapters. Now Nicodemus comes back into the picture. And then for 12 chapters, Nicodemus disappears again in the shadows. By now, Jesus has worked his way all the way to the cross and has been crucified. May I remind you this morning that there were two men that took Jesus' body off the cross. Joseph of Arimathea, he went to Pilate and asked, can I have the body of Jesus? And Pilate granted him that right to have that body. And the Bible says, Joseph of Arimathea along with Nicodemus. I love this truth. It's so overlooked. Along with Nicodemus, the Pharisee took his body off of the cross, took his body down and treasured what they held in their hands. If you understand something about a Jew, a Jew did not touch dead things. They surely didn't touch a dead corpse. So for Nicodemus to touch the body of Jesus, I mean, we're talking totally unsacred. That just would not have happened. That means something greater is working in his heart. And I've always looked at it and said it like this. He didn't see Jesus as dead. He saw him as alive. This man's alive. Just because the spirit blew in and the spirit blew out doesn't mean anything. I know he's alive. I know because I know what's happened in my own heart. I know what's happened in my own life. Nicodemus's heart was to take the crucified Savior off of the cross and wrap him in grave clothes. I want you to compare that now with the Apostle Paul's heart, which was to put humanity on the cross with the crucified Savior so that in him our grave clothes could be removed. I'm talking about the grave clothes not only of sin, but I'm talking about the grave clothes of guilt and shame and fear and condemnation. Our grave clothes were put on Christ when we were crucified with Him. Grave clothes I'm talking about that prevent your very eyes from seeing the goodness of God. That's what grave clothes do! They're like a sleeping mask. That's what grave clothes are like when fear and condemnation and guilt and shame and worry, trepidation, whatever it may be, when they get working in your life, it's like somebody put a mask on you, a welder's helmet, and you can't see suddenly the goodness of God because you're saying, man, if God was this good, how come I'm going through all this stuff? Friends, like I said earlier before we open service, the rain falls on the just and the unjust, the sun rises on the good and the evil. Now that will help you the next time you think about how evil some man is, some woman is. Yet God allows the sun to rise and warm that person and give them a tan and make them look even more healthy and more beautiful. Why? Is it because that person is good? No, it's because God is good. He's a good, good father. We sang that song today, didn't we? Nicodemus may have had 20-20 vision, but he was spiritually blind until he came to the revelation that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And then in the same breath, Jesus said, 
For the Father didn't send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that through Him the whole world would be saved. In the book of Acts, we meet another man that streamed at gnats and swallowed camels. He was just as spiritually blind as Nicodemus. He is none other than Saul of Tarsus, the man that would subsequently become the Apostle Paul. Oh, I love Paul. I love his writings. I love his heart. And it comes out in his writings. Acts chapter 9, beginning at verse 1. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way. Let me tell you something about this. See, back then they didn't call them Christians. If you were a follower of Christ, you were referred to as you're following the way. And in my Bible, it capitalizes that W for way. So it's showing you these are Christians. These are followers. So Paul is strategically going after people that follow the way. Now, isn't that fitting? Because Jesus said in John 14, 6, he said, I am the way, the truth and the life. Picking right up on this motif right here in the book of Acts. So that if they found any who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? I love Saul's response. He said, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. He replied, and friends, the truth that we walk away with from that right there is simply, when we're persecuted, Jesus is persecuted. And so when we think about uh, the scriptures that says that we'll be persecuted for his name's sake, friends, it's all fulfilled right there. He said, you're persecuting me when you persecute those that belong to the way, because I am the way, and we are one with each other. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless, and rightfully so. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. Why? Because God hasn't given him new eyes to see yet. He was blinded by the light. Well, he's going to get those new eyes pretty soon. He could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. I love this. Ananias is just the male version of Hannah. Hannah and Ananias. They both mean grace. God is tapping a man on the shoulder by the name of Grace and said, I've got an assignment for you. I'm going to send you to a guy that's so steeped in the law. <laughs> oh, man. You think he was happy to go? No, he wasn't very happy to go. He says, in Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and asked for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. 
Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. Now, what I love about this is if God would take someone like Saul and make him the chosen man to write the gospel. Does that bring hope for you and me? It does. He reached down in the gutter and he got a man out of there. It wasn't the only man available. It was the man that he chose so that we could all look back on the writings and go, wow, God picked him. God chose him. This guy was rough around the collar, man. He said, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Oh, here we go. Remember when I talked about kneeling down to pray with people? Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Now let me ask you a question. What was the first thing that Saul saw when he opened his eyes? The first thing he saw was a man standing in front of him by the name of Ananias. The first thing he saw was grace. That was the very first thing he saw when he opened his eyes. He saw grace. We sing that song here once in a while. I see grace. I see grace. Sealed by your sacrifice, I see grace. He saw grace standing in front of him. Paul's conversion was nothing short of providential and miraculous. I believe that daddy had more in mind than just spoiling this guy's mission to kill Christians. God's purpose was even greater than just making a blind man see. He went from Lauren to Papa. He went from Saul to Paul. He would never be known the same way ever again. And after Paul's conversion, he received the revelation of God's amazing grace through Jesus Christ himself. We see this truth in Galatians chapter 1, verses 11 through 16. The Apostle Paul wrote these words. He said, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached, <laughs> the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I didn't go to Bible college for this. It's not some other man. He even says, I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation of Jesus Christ. So what he was saying is this. He was saying, listen, there is a message trapped on the inside of me that has to come out. It has to come out. I didn't get it from a man. I didn't get it from the normal ways you get information. He said, I got it by revelation from Jesus Christ. He was saying, what's going to come out of me is uniquely different than anything you've ever heard in your entire life. 
So just pull up your chair and you listen in here, folks. We'll talk till midnight if I have to. But I'm telling you, I am going to stuff your heart full of the gospel. He said, for you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people, and I was extremely zealous for the traditions of my father. Now listen, friends, there is nothing wrong with being zealous. You just have to have the right message, that's all. Being passionate is okay. Don't let anybody squelch that on you. Being passionate is okay, but it has to be the message that liberates. It has to be the message that brings people out of the situations they're in in life. He said, but when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me, look at those words, and by his grace was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Valerie and I were talking about it on the way to church this morning. I said, I don't know if I even know how to preach about myself. I mean, yeah, we include ourselves in stories, but I said, how is it that you do preach about self? She said, just don't preach Jesus. But wow, that's that's worth signing up for right there, friends. You just preach Jesus and he will hijack everything. Preach Christ. That's what Paul did. He preached Christ crucified. Nothing about him. He just interjected himself in the stories to tell you how bad he was, man, and some of the issues he had to deal with. But he said, ultimately, let me tell you about Christ. Let me tell you about Jesus. With the revelation of grace, the Apostle Paul impacted the lives of the Romans, at least some of them. He impacted the lives of the Corinthians. He impacted the lives of the Colossians, the Philippians, the Thessalonians. He impacted those in Iconium, Lystra, Derby. He impacted lives everywhere he went, and he impacted the lives of the Galatians. What did he impact them with? He impacted them with the message of grace, friends. And what was the Apostle Paul's message of grace? What was it? Come on. What was his message of grace? Can you boil it down? Well, depends on where you look, but I'll try my best. What was his message of grace? Well, I want to draw your very eyes to Paul's message of grace. It's found in Galatians chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. He said, we who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too, meaning we too, even in the Gentile world, have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. He said, not one. I don't care how many accolades you have. Not one will be justified by the works of the law. In other words, if you try to contribute to Jesus' finished work, I'm telling you, you'll end up dry. You'll end up empty. You cannot add anything to his grace. You cannot add anything to it. Otherwise, it's no longer grace, friends. It's a partnership that you're doing some things and he's doing others. It's not grace. The message of the finished work of grace, I've said it this way for years, is a slow drip. And as this message was formulating in my heart, I felt the Lord say it this way, the message of grace is a slow brew. Now, let me talk to the coffee lovers here for a second, okay? 
How many of you have bought a coffee pot and then over time it drips a little bit slower and a little bit slower? That's because it has these passageways and the water is working its way through it to heat up. And over time what happens is inside that coffee pot it gets scaled. It's called lime scale. Anybody ever dealt with that? I'm sure you have. To the point where the coffee won't even hardly drip out anymore. Come on, Papa. You drink some coffee. and That's bound to happen to you at least through one coffee pot in life. I mean, it gets down so slow. It's moving slower than a wounded snail. I mean, it's just creeping along. It's awful. That's because, again, it's scaled up on the inside of it. And I find it interesting that the Bible referred to Saul having scales on his eyes. The reason the gospel of grace is slow to take effect is because as it is dripping into our hearts, it has to descale the old time religion. See, if you had nothing that shaped you in life based on law, old time religion, friends, old covenant, then that gospel of grace would drip so much quicker. But grace has to deal with some stuff along the journey. It's got some things it has to evict as it goes along. A drop in, a drop out. A drop in, a drop out. It is a slow process. Catching the spirit of the finished work of grace can almost be so gradual that believers grow weary at the slow pace of their makeover. In fact, many believers are enticed by the Old Covenant Scriptures to go back into a state of performance-based Christianity because at least there, their cup of coffee seemed to brew more quickly. Not realizing by putting themselves under the law, they have hung a millstone of condemnation around their neck. Oh, friends, it's not condemnation by God. I heard it earlier. The Bible says in Romans chapter 8 and verse 1, Therefore, there is now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. I'm talking about condemnation of our own making. I'm talking about when we do the abusing, when we do the using, when we do the chastising on our own selves. That's condemnation. When we feel like we ought to pay for something that we've done wrong, that's condemnation. And God says there is no condemnation for them that are in Christ Jesus. When he said there is therefore now no, N-O, condemnation, that word no right there comes from two Greek words, ude and heis. Put together, it's udais. Ude means not and heis means one. And literally when he says there's therefore now no condemnation, he says there is therefore not even one condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. Get that off your checklist, friends. It is gone in Christ with his finished work. And as you read the book of Galatians, and listen, if there's one thing I could challenge you to do today is spend some time in this book. I don't know of a book that will set you more free, especially that third and fourth chapter of Galatians. But the Apostle Paul comes into Galatia, and I preached a little bit about this in my last message, but he comes into Galatia, and he finds people that are so under the law, man, they just, 
That's all they know is Moses. That's all they know is the Ten Commandments. And he brings the gospel that he was called by Jesus to preach. And he begins to show them what the true gospel looks like. And brother, they swallowed it hook, line, and sinker. And they loved it. Condemnation was gone for the first time in their life. And then Paul had to go on a missionary journey. But he loved those Galatians so much, he came back. And when he came back, he found out they had went back to their old ways. Why? Because the Judaizers had come in. The Judaizers had infiltrated Galatia when he was gone, and they came in and they said, no, 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 no. You can't give up the Ten Commandments. You can't give up the law. You can't do that. You still got to be circumcised. They put all these laws and rules on them and said, if you're going to be right with God, you've got to do this, this, and this. And so when the Apostle Paul came back and he found that was going on, oh, he wasn't mad at them. He loved them. But he had to deal with some stuff. Friends, I'm going to tell you something. Strong leadership will deal with stuff when it comes up. It has to. Or you're going to have people running amok. Leadership has to deal with stuff. And the Apostle Paul wrote him a letter, what the gospel looks like again. And he wrote these words in Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. He said, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. In other words, what the Judaizers did, friends, is they came in and said, hey, how would you like a new coffee pot? We got coffee pots for everybody here. How would you all like coffee pots today? Friends, listen, when it comes to the coffee pot, there's nothing wrong with the coffee pot, and there's nothing wrong with the coffee. The problem is the water. That's why Jesus was so passionate about calling himself living water. And he says, if you drink from this living water, you will never thirst again because in this living water is life. There's no scale in here. And so the Apostle Paul is addressing this up front. He said, listen, I told you about living in the grace of Christ, but what have you done? You have turned to another gospel, and I even hate to even call it that, he said, because it's really not even the gospel, because gospel means good news. That's what you're calling it, and that might have been what they called it, but it's not the gospel. The gospel is Jesus Christ and him crucified, and that I am justified and crucified. I've been magnified with Christ. I've been glorified with him. And then the Apostle Paul continued to pen the book of Galatians. I was very passionate about this scripture the last time I ministered, Galatians chapter 3 and verse 1. This is what the Apostle Paul writes. He says, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Look at those words. Before your very eyes. Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. If we only go back 200 years to around 1820, only 12% of the population of the world was literate. We're talking 2,000 years ago. We're talking less than one half of 1% was literate back when Paul's penning this. So when he says, you foolish Galatians, he's not picking on them, friends. He's not saying, you bunch of dummies. The point I made before was simply this. That word foolish there, the implication means sensual. And what he is saying, he said, is you have went back to operating by your feelings. 
you have went back to operating by your emotions. And I'm telling you, they will lie to you. You ever turned down the street and said, I think this is the way to go, only to find out it's a dead end. It doesn't go anywhere. But yet you thought, well, I'm pretty sure I went this way. And then you get there and you're stopped looking at a barrier and you go, no, I came this way last time. No, you didn't come that way last time. And the Apostle Paul knows there's no life in this other thing you call the gospel. The gospel is Christ crucified. You crucified with him apart from your own works. And so he's saying, listen, you went back to operating by feelings. You can't do that. God gave you feelings so that you could love people and you could appreciate his goodness. He didn't give us feelings to operate by feelings because your feelings will run contrary to the word of God at times. <laughs> Most of the time, it will run contrary. Listen, I didn't call myself to preach. I would have never called myself to preach. My feelings were running in a different direction when he called me to preach. But finally, I had to say, Daddy, I hear you loud and clear. That was 20-some years ago, but Anyway, he's saying, you sensual Galatians. And then he asks that question, who has bewitched you? I know those of you that grew up in the 60s and 70s are thinking about Samantha Stevens twinkling her little nose and snapping her little fingers and blinking or whatever, you know, making things fly across the room. This is not what he's getting at, friends. When he's saying, who bewitched you? He's saying, who fascinated you? Who came along and charmed you? Who got off their little horn and made the snake dance? He said, who did that to you? He said, I'll tell you who did that to you. The Judaizers did that to you. When they came in with a message that can't help you. Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. What is he saying? He was saying, listen, I know we don't have any photo albums to look at. I know there are no smartphones, no snapshots anywhere, so I'm going to draw the best picture I can of what Jesus looked like on the cross. I'm going to draw the best picture I can of what the true gospel of grace looks like. I'll tell you what it looks like. It looks like Jesus Christ crucified. That's what it looks like. I don't know of back-to-back chapters in the Bible that explain the gospel of grace better and more thoroughly than Galatians chapter 3 and chapter 4. I want you to remember that. Please go home and meditate on those chapters. There is no other place in the Bible you'll find it explained so well. In those two chapters, the apostle Paul pours out his heart to make sure that the Galatians really understand the heartbeat of the gospel. Listen. The heartbeat of the gospel never takes Moses on a date. It doesn't. The heartbeat of the gospel will always, always, always draw your very eyes to Jesus' finished work of grace. And then the Apostle Paul reminds them of what the gospel of grace first meant to them. He reminded them that they were so filled with joy when they first heard the message of grace that they would have given him not just their liver, not just their kidneys, but they would have given him the most precious part on their body, their very eyes. My last scripture, Galatians chapter 4 and verse 15. The Apostle Paul writes, What has happened to all your joy? I can testify that if you could have done so, you would have torn out 
your very eyes. And you would have given them to me. Friends, I want to tell you something. You've got to really impact somebody's life to ever even... Listen, brother, I love you with all my heart. We talk on the phone sometimes. I love you with all my heart. I never think about tearing my eyes out for you, brother. I'd lay my life down for you, but I'm not tearing my eyes out. But I'm telling you something, folks. Listen, you've got to really do something inside of another man's heart for them to say, you would have given your very eyes to me. What was it he did? Tells you right there, he told him the truth. Does it say it there? He said, I came in here and I told you the truth. I wasn't here to win any contests. I wasn't here to be liked by you. It didn't matter to me one way or another. I was on a commission as a truth teller. I came by here to tell you the truth of the gospel. And I deposited it in your heart. And you let someone come along and give you a fresh coffee pot. Those Judaizers. Oh, man, he didn't like them. Friends, the wonderful truths that reach out to us from this message today are these. There will come a time in every one of our lives when we change addresses. Whether it's from state to state or whether it's from earth to heaven, we are sojourners in this land. The important thing is that we don't move away from the gospel for it is the power of God unto salvation. In our Christian journey, we do a lot of things together with Jesus. And I love doing things with Jesus, but friends, I'm going to tell you something. There's nothing more important than growing in Christ. We grow together in grace. We grow together in honor. And we grow together in the revelation that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. We must always be mindful to be hard workers. Not for our salvation, that is a finished work, but so that we can help the weak. I believe it's important to kneel and pray with the downcast and the hurting and the afflicted, and the poor people of the world. I believe it's important for your very eyes to weep with those who weep. I believe it's essential to embrace and kiss the ones you love while you have opportunity. We are so preoccupied with living life that few of us have ever paused to ask the question, Will I start to die right away? The answer to that question is yes. The moment life begins, a timer has been set on our lives. The Bible tells us in the Psalms, teach us to number our days. The question is, will you live the balance of your life with a John 15, 13 heart? Greater love has no man than this, than that man lay down his life for his friends. The Apostle Paul paraphrased the Apostle John's iconic verse when he wrote these words to the Galatians. He said, I can testify that when I first unveiled to you the finished work of grace, you were so full of joy that if you could have done so, you would have torn out 
your very eyes and would have given them to me. Beautiful. Absolutely a treasure. Father, I want to thank you and I want to praise you for your grace. I've got such a much larger picture of your heart through this word. And that is my prayer for everyone here today, Daddy. I want to thank you. In Christ, there is no scale. In Christ, there is rich oxygenated blood and that blood has the antibodies in it that make us holy and pure and righteous all the days of our lives. I want to thank you, Father, that yes, we are on a journey in life. And yes, we do move around. We move from state to state. We move from house to house. And one day we'll all move from here to there. But I want to thank you, Father, we do not move away from the gospel. For in the gospel we find the power of God unto salvation. So thank you for that, Father. We praise you for that, Daddy, as this message is dripping into our heart. Teach us not to be offended at the slow pace of transformation. The slow pace sometimes it takes for the makeover because the gospel of grace as it comes in has to deal with some scale. It has to push some things out of the way we call old-time religion. And Father, when it pushes it out, I love it because then the Apostle Paul walked into that fifth chapter of Galatians and he says it is for freedom that you have been set free. So Daddy, we thank you for that and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.